As we move through these eight C's of biblical history, and we began to see some of these actual events that took place, we began to see God's greatness unfold, even in the midst of man's sinful condition. And as we see man's desperately wicked, despicable state, we see God's greatness shine through it. And that is really what I want us to get through today's message as we deal with a, a, an event that is very well known to us, unfortunately is kept within the realm of, of Sunday school too often. And that is why we're studying the eight C's. I find it interesting that those things which we study in Sunday school and never study again are some of those very same things that remind us of the greatness of our God and really detail our history for us as we see man's sinful condition and we leave it in the realm of a child's story instead of understanding the theological significance for us as adults. Of the many truths that the message this morning reveals, perhaps the greatest is the reflection of our God and of the sad, sinful state of humanity. God is so often... As we've moved through these eight C's so far, we are, this is our fourth one. We are nearly halfway through our study on the eight C's. And so far, at each and every impasse, God is revealed as great. But when man has anything to do with it, we're seen as sinners and despicable. And that is really our nature after the fall. And so as we move through these, we may try to run from God, avoiding anything and everything that has to do with Him. But we see that God is pulling us back, grabbing a hold and revealing himself to us. And each and every time, not only is he revealing something special to us, he's revealing something special about the salvation plan, the redemption plan. And as he does, does so, we are very nearly there. We've got next week and then we're going to get to Christ and we're going to see God's plan unfold even more. You see, all of this reminds us of what we ought to be doing as believers. Jesus left us with one command, one main objective. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Teaching them and baptizing them. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You see, that is our primary objective. And I'm going to ask you to do something that is incredible. It's difficult. It's hard. And that is to go against the grain. To go against what the world says. Because the world is going to do as they did at the Tower of Babel, which is where we're going to be at today. And so as we begin this, I want us to focus on this idea, and then we're going to pray. The corruption of man caused sin, death, and struggle to enter a once perfect creation. That is a good central idea, but it is not ours this morning. The idea I want us to really focus on is even as man continues to reject the commands of God, God reveals his majesty. God is going to reveal His majesty. And so let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, as we bow our heads before You this morning, I praise You for the opportunity that we have to lay all of this at Your feet, to glorify You in all that we do and say. I pray that You would challenge us to live according to Your Word, that we would give You the glory and the honor for what You are doing as we see the world events unfold before us. We see these stages at where you have made a direct impact and changed the course of human history. And by changing the course of human history, we see your greatness, your mercy, and your loving kindness. Because without a change, sin left to itself is totally destructive. 
Lord, I pray that we would take the radical step of being different from the world around us and that we would give you the glory and the honor for that. Even as we face what will be difficult times, you've promised nothing different, but that will be times in which when we are done, you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, give me the words to speak this morning that your name would be glorified above all others. Lord, draw us to yourself. Help us to give you glory and honor for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we move into our fourth sea, we find that man's rejection of the ways of God were not washed away by the flood. You see, the flood revealed what was to come in our Savior. There was one door on the ark. There was only one way in. There was a call to repent and a rejection thereof. But sin wasn't wiped away by the flood. Sin still continues and it still motivates mankind, yet we also discover more about our God and more about His command to make disciples. And it is incredible to me as we look through history that God moves in a way that is is totally unexpected. It is totally unique. And each time He steps in, it changes the course of history. God works in a way that is majestic and it is righteous. Man works in a way that is predictable. You want to know how man's going to work? Man left unto himself will be grotesque, he will be despicable, and he will be selfish. That's your definition. Man left to himself will do something that is predictable. But God will move in ways that are totally unexpected. And ways that will draw us back to Him. We begin with man as we observe the post-flood living. What was life like after the flood? And that is where we were going to begin post-flood living here in Genesis chapter 11, if you want to turn there with me. And then we're also going to see, uh, we're going to continue with man as we're going to see his sinful ambition. Because man left to himself will always pursue his own sinful ambition. And finally, we're going to see, we're going to turn and look at the Lord and we're going to see his correction. We're going to spend most of our passage, most of our time on the Lord's correction because there's some things I want to draw out of there that are uh, something that we can apply today but something that also helps us to understand who our God is. And so as we begin, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and I want to read both of these as we recognize post-flood living, and then I'm going to turn you back to Genesis chapter 9. But let's start here in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. The Scripture says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. You see, here we have post-flood living. We have those who are leaving the ark, moving out, and they're moving east and a little bit south. And they come to this plain of Shinar. But turn back to Genesis chapter 9 because something interesting is taking place. Man is actually somewhat obeying God. Because in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, we have this verse, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, we have a command to Noah, and this is very important for us to understand because this is what relates to the Tower of Babel. Because as the floodwaters have just receded from the face of the earth, and Noah was about to enjoy the very first rainbow as a sign of the Lord's covenant with him and with us, and promised to never again destroy the earth by a flood of water. But God is detailing how life has changed, and God tells Noah what has changed. In fact, there are many things that have changed, but there are some things that have stayed the same. 
You see, one that is similar is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is the same command that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. But now he says some things have changed. The change is that it will, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, they were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But now the command has changed. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because subduing it is no longer going to be available for man to completely obey that command. You see, God isn't giving us a command that is out of our realm. It is The change is that it's not going to be easy to subdue it anymore. Because the animals will now fear man and man is now allowed to eat animals. There's an obvious rift. Up to this point, man was not allowed to eat animals. But as they leave the ark, God says, okay, now it is time. Because of your sin, because of the conditions of this planet now, after the flood, you're going to have to eat something that is going to help subsist in your diet. For our purposes this morning, we see that the first part of the Lord's command is the same as it was in Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is what I want us to focus on this morning because that brings us to the exodus from the ark. The exodus from the ark As we arrive at Genesis chapter 11, we find that the people of the earth have at this point, at least up to verse 2, been obedient. They're leaving the ark and they're moving. Now, part of this would have been natural reasons. Now, where where did the ark rest? Does anybody know? The ark rested in the mountains of Ariat. And in the mountains of Ariat were now likely no no longer covered by a canopy. Now there was likely snow in the mountains of Ariat and so they had to move. You had to get out of the mountains and you had to go to the plains, the valleys below. And so they're moving east and a little bit south. And they come to this valley, this plain of Shinar. And so they're obeying the Lord. But what is interesting is they've gone back from where they came. Because scholars tell us that the Garden of Eden was likely in a very similar, if not the exact same place as Shinar. But now the garden is gone, destroyed by the flood. And so they return to where they came from originally. But we find something unique about them. Something that is a change, but was not originally changed when they left the ark. You see, they leave the ark, and notice what it says in in the in part of verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. The same language and the same words. Now if God repeats something, should we pay attention to it? When God uses the word same twice in this one verse, should we pay attention to it? Yeah, I think we should. So let's understand what it means. You see, after leaving the ark, they all had the same language and indeed the same words. Obviously, we understand the same language. You speak English, I speak English. That's the same language. So we understand that. But what about the same words? If I said the word mate to you as an English-speaking American, that would have a different definition than the word mate to an English-speaking Australian, right? We have different definitions. We have different words. But it would also be different if I said the word mate to an English-speaking Englishman, right? We'd have a third meaning. And so as we understand, you and I may have the same language, but we have different meanings for our words. But when they left the ark, they not only had the same language, and language literally means what comes out of their lips. They had the same language, comes out of their lips, but they also had the same definition to what came out of their lips, You didn't have a different definition. You had the exact same words. Now, when you consider this, these people had the same definition for the same words in the same language. 
This would bring a natural unity between those who are living together, would it not? How many times, wives, has your husband said something and you get something totally different from it? Probably today already that's happened, if your husband's used any words today. So uh, if, if you're using words, you're using different definitions. Can you imagine the unity that would be in your marriage if what came out of your mouth was understood the same way that it was intended to be understood? That's the unity that we have after the ark. You see, because not only did they speak the same language, out of their lips came the same language, but out of their definition came the same meaning. They knew what each other was saying. They understood what each other was doing. When we think of the number one problem in marriage, friendship, and work relationships, at the root of every single one of them is communication. Communication. In fact, we spend billions and billions and billions of dollars every year on communication. We have whole industries that are based on nothing else except communication. The Internet is based upon communication. Cell phones are based on communication because we're not very good at it. We need help. Well, in the days of the ark, they didn't need help the days right after the ark. Communication was exactly what God wanted it to be. Words were understood as they were uh, intended. Imagine the work that could be done if everyone spoke the same words in the same language. Think of all that could be accomplished. Oh, now see, now you're thinking just like they did in the Tower of Babel. Instead of using this gift for the glory of God, they used it for sin and selfishness. You see, they had an incredible opportunity to take these, this gift that God has given to them and share the gospel message, the coming gospel message with everybody. They could have made sure that everybody completely understood there would be no works-based salvation because they would understand what was meant. There would be no redefinition, no false churches because they understood what was said. And yet... Instead of making sure and obeying the Lord and scattering out and sharing the same message, they disobeyed God. And they used the gift that God had given to them to indulge in sin and selfishness. So let's see how they do this in man's sinful ambition. And by the way, man's sinful ambition, I don't care if it's at the Tower of Babel, I don't care if it's pre-Ark, I don't care if it's today, it's all the same. We see the same Results, And we see the same examples. Verses 3 through 4 of Genesis chapter 11. Scripture says, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad from the, over the face of the whole earth. Some interesting words, and we're going to get into them. But let's look here at the materials in which they used to build. Because I'm a builder. I'm fascinated by the building materials that they use. And so when God gives us this much detail, I'm going to pay attention. Because this is absolutely incredible. Consider what is said in verse 3. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar, or uh, some of your translations would say uh, bitumen for mortar. It is amazing how much detail is given to these building materials. How they knew to bake brick, we don't know. But I tell you what, it is unique in its building style. And not only is it unique, it is solid. In fact, we still do it today. 
We still build bricks the same way they built bricks. But it is interesting because when you read the account in Exodus of how the Israelites made bricks, do you know how they built bricks? They mixed the the mud together, they put straw in it, and they let it bake out in the sun. Well, that would last for a little while, but it would soon fall apart. Do you know how the Romans and the Greeks built? They took rock that they quarried out and they used it to build. But not these people. These people took exactly what was necessary, mixed it all together, put it in a kiln, and baked it. Now, uh, for risk of sounding, I don't know, at risk of sounding uh, less than intelligent, this isn't as easy as a caveman can do it. All right? This is something that takes some thought and some process. Now, as we think about this, we recognize... We recognize that there is something very special about these people. They are not uh, less intelligent than we are today. These people knew what they were doing. And not only did they use brick, but they used bitumen for mortar. And how they understood that's not given to us. Now, bitumen is similar to the oil sands in Canada. It's not, some translations translate it as tar. They're chemically totally different. But it is similar to tar. It is sticky, and when heated, it becomes pliable. And it becomes moldable, and it made a very, very good mortar that wouldn't run out in the rain. And so it could rain, it could beat down on this tower, and this tower would stand. The bricks would stand and uphold themselves to years and years and years worth of abuse. And so they had incredible materials in which to build. But then they had something else. They had the skill to build it. They had the skill to build it. Not only did they have the same language and the same words, but they had the skill and the know-how to build a building that would last. This is a God-given ability in both the understanding and the actual construction. This is incredible engineering. In fact, we don't know how they got all of this engineering. Remember, these are some of the same people who just built the boat, the ark. They descended from them. We have intelligence and incredible ability to build. We have incredible engineers. Evolutionists would like you to believe that they didn't have that, but they did. They could could build and they could construct. And not only could they build and construct, they could do it very, very well. Now we move into a problem here because we say, well, we don't see this today. We don't see the Tower of Babel. So what happened to the Tower of Babel? Well, there's two thoughts on it. One, that it was destroyed because the Tower of Babel would have been in the land of the Babylonians later. And so it could have been destroyed. But I rather believe that as we get into the next few verses, that God stopped construction before it got very far. Because it didn't get very high, I don't believe. For God to say, you know what, the problem wasn't necessarily the building. The problem was the attitudes of the people. And that's what we're going to find here now as we look at the sin problem. Because we have a problem. Despite all that the Lord had given these people, incredible skill, incredible knowledge, and the same language and same words. Consider what God had done for these people. And yet, despite all that the Lord had given to these people, their first collective response is abject disobedience. Our sin should serve as a constant reminder that we need the Lord and the forgiveness that only He offers. When you go and share the gospel, when you start to make disciples and they say, why does sin exist? Why does God allow this to happen? 
If you remember back to message one of this series, it is not God's fault that it happens. It is man's fault. And as we recognize that, when we see sin, when we see death, when we see cancer, when we see thorns, that should remind us that our God is great and that we are not. Why does God allow sin to exist on this earth, even though He has dealt with it? It is because the darkness of sin provides the light of God. And when we see the light of God, when we see the contrast, we know that we can do nothing else but fall on our face and confess our sins. Why does sin exist today? Because God is allowing it so that we see the light through the darkness. The first command upon leaving the ark was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But notice what these people said in verses 3 and 4. After they've baked the bricks in verse 3, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. That's sin number one. Sin number two, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What was the one command that they were supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So they, a few years later, they're traveling down. They go, oh, Shinar looks like a nice place to, to stay. We've got the Tigers and the Euphrates. We've got uh, building materials right here. Let's stay here. Let's build us a city. That's their first, or that was their primary sin. Their first sin was their selfishness. You see, they had no more than left the ark and traveled a couple hundred miles and found a place that they wanted to stay. The two areas of sin, and I want us to see these because these happen over and over and over again. The first one, let us make a name for ourselves. Translation, let's be somebody. I want to be somebody special. I want to leave uh, a monument behind that says, I was here. Is that what God wanted? No. God wanted and expects us to give Him glory, not ourselves. But when you see that sin of selfishness, it is just like it happens time and time and time again today. In fact, this is what the sin was in the garden. What was the garden sin? The sin that Satan got Eve to agree with. She wanted to be like who? God. When these people looked at the land of Shinar, they're like, yep, I could see a tower right there, and it's going to be this big, and it's going to make a name for us so that we can be like God. You see, we see the same sin over and over and over again. Second, they said specifically, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We don't want to obey God. We want to go 180 degrees contrary to the Word of God. They were supposed to spread over the whole earth. And they said, no, 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 I don't like that idea because I want to stay here. You see what happens? As soon as Satan gets us to agree that we can be like God, we start making these decisions and usurping God's authority. Believer, it happens in our lives today even as believers. But it happens in the world around us all the time. We should not be surprised. So let me make this personal. Because our chief objective in studying the eight C's is to remind us how we can make disciples. So are you like those who built the Tower of Babel? The Lord has left us with the objective of making disciples and training them, teaching them to observe all that He has commanded us. By your selfishness, are you disobeying that command? By your selfishness, are you disobeying? You know what God said. Now, regardless if you're shy, you're scared, whatever it happens to be, are you obeying God's command? 
you know, as I looked at my own life, I said, you know what? Oftentimes I fail in that point. Because I don't want to offend. I don't want to hurt myself. God's command didn't say, go make disciples unless it hurts you a little bit. Or unless you're really shy, because I know some people are shy. God didn't say that. God said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So are you doing as they did at the Tower of, ba- uh, Tower of Babel? Are you living in the same way? Walking 180 degrees. I know God said make disciples, but I'm going to walk this way because I can act like a Christian. I can live like a Christian. I can have faith and, and live a good moral life. Are you saying, you know what? I'm going to abandon that because God said go make disciples. And I'm going to leave that with Him. I'm going to live a radical faith and go make disciples. I know it's going to hurt me. I know there's going to be days where I'm really hesitant to share it. Are you willing to do that? I want you to turn over briefly with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Because before you can ask and answer the question I just gave you, you need to understand this verse. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I want to ask you this question. Every time you... Is God concerned about the mundane things? He is. He says whether you eat or drink. That's a pretty small thing. Do it to the glory of God. You think He's concerned about you obeying His command of making disciples? You better believe it. He left us with that one command. Are we willing to go do it? Somebody was willing to do it with you. Are you willing to go do it with somebody else? To go make disciples? To teach them and to train them in all that God has commanded us. Because that is the heart of what is going on at the Tower of Babel. They said, I know God's command, but I just don't want to go out on my own. You know how hard it is to raise sheep out of there? Out where I'm the only one out there? I don't want to go do it. Those are the same excuses you and I come up with. And we say, you know what? Uh, I know God said that, but I really think that I can make a better decision. And so I'm going to go protect myself rather than obey His commands. All of this leads to this point, and this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. The Lord's correction, back to Genesis chapter 11. And I want you to know something. The Lord's involved. He didn't just set it into motion, come back when Christ was needed. No, He's involved in the day-to-day activities. Notice what is said here in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 especially. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. You see, we have the Lord's involvement, especially here in verse 5. We should know that the Lord is involved in us. He didn't just come to save us, give us fire insurance, and leave. That's not what He did. He wants us to become like Him. He stays with us so that we can become like Him. 
Therefore, we should not be surprised when He corrects us. You should not be surprised when you're going one way and a believer says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not right. Or when you're going the other way and you're walking away from His command to make disciples and God puts roadblocks in your way to try to stop you, to prevent you. As The more roadblocks you climb over, the harder it is going to be for you to come back and obey God. But the more difficult the punishment is going to be in the end. And so as we begin to understand this, I want you to understand that the Lord is involved and it is great how the writer reveals God's attitude towards man's sin. God came down. And the whole sin of man is, man wants to be a God. But in order for uh, God to deal with it, he had to come down. Man wants to esteem himself as a God. God said, no, no, no. i got to come all the way down to see you. i got to come all the way down to see what you're doing. You see, man wants to be a God in our sinful state, but so unbelievably impossible it is that some have deceived themselves into thinking that it is possible. There are those in our world today, and some of those that we know quite well who say, I must be God. You go, how unbelievably impossible that is. And yet somehow they deceive themselves that it is possible. But God doesn't destroy the earth when He came down. Instead, we see a patient and a calculated judgment. A patient and a calculated judgment. He says, okay, you've used my gift to you. Same language, same words. You use my gift to you for sinful, evil purposes. I tell you what, I'm going to remove my gift. You know, he does that in the life of a believer. He doesn't remove salvation, but he removes his blessings and causes us to wander around and question where he's coming from because he's removed his blessings. He does that with a believer. But then the Lord's involvement uh, causes him to establish languages. God takes the creativity and skill that he has given and he introduces language. Now God uses the language to stop the work on the tower and also to begin the scattering of all peoples. On a side note, when Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, do you know what he was saying? Take the gospel to all the languages. Who created languages? God did. He introduced the languages. Who knows how many of them there are? God does. He knows what it's going to take to get the gospel into every single language. And we're almost there. We're almost there. So you see, isn't it incredible that God who introduced all languages has seen fit to send the message of the Savior even to the remotest peoples and the remotest languages? He is not only the one who can overcome such an obstacle, or rather, He is the only one who can overcome such an obstacle. Obviously, man can't do it. Because if they could have done it, they would have said, okay, everybody sit down. Let's talk about this tower. Let's build this tower. If man was left to his own devices and had the ability to overcome the language barrier, they would have sat down right there. So, okay, we're going we're gonna to isolate these languages. We're going to come up with a language we can speak so that we can continue building the tower. But they couldn't do it. And so they scattered. Despite our sin, God's plan of redemption still moves forward. Despite all the language, you say, wow, what an obstacle. Why would God do that? It's difficult to get the gospel into these languages. But as we understand that God is the one who instituted the languages, we understand that God's plan of redemption still moves forward despite man's sin. But I want us to consider why God instituted languages. 
Verse 7, come let us go down and there confuse their languages or language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. Now take verse 8 and go back up. Go back up to verse 4. Verse 4 says, They said, Come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Word for word, God says, You know what? I'm going to scatter you abroad over the whole earth because that's what I commanded you to do in the first place. You know what is intriguing about this? Is God uses a unique and an unexpected judgment to cause people to obey Him. Will God be obeyed? Yes, God will be obeyed. And in God, in us obeying God, God is drawing us near to Him. So the Lord scatters the people. The very thing that man was trying to avoid, the very thing that God had commanded, God requires. Not only is it repeated once, not only does God repeat it once in verse 8, but look at verse 9. It says, Therefore the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. I mentioned in verse 1, is it important when God says something more than once? If God repeats himself, should we pay attention? Yeah. Do you know how many times God repeated this statement? I'm going to scatter you abroad over the whole earth. Twice. Do you know why? Because there were two main sins that led man to disobey God. One, they wanted to be like God. Two, they didn't want to be scattered. God says, you're not God. I am, and you're going to be scattered. And he does both. And then he says this, the name of the place was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. You see, they made a name for themselves. Their name was confused. That's what the word Babel means. God says, okay, you want to make a name for yourselves? It's not going to be God. It's going to be confused. I'm going to call this place Babel because you are confused. I get excited when I see what God is doing in each of these examples of man's sin. I see man's sin and I I mourn over the sin. But then I see God coming in, and if you know anything about a biblical history, you know that God is always the hero. God is the one that comes in and rescues it. And as you get excited about seeing what God is doing, God takes what is terrible and destructive and counter the things that He has commanded and reveals to us that we need a Savior. Every time He's pointing, you need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior. This is our message as we fulfill our primary objective to make disciples. When the world says, why does God allow cancer? Say, without cancer we wouldn't know the grace of God. Because in our finite minds, we can't even begin to comprehend it. We know what we experience, but we don't know the opposite of that. We know that we're sinners, and because we know we're sinners, we know that God is not. We don't know what it's like to be not sinning, but we know that we want it. We know that it's perfect. Another wonderful reality hits us when we study these passages. We see the reality of not only what God does for us, but we see the reality of who our God is. A God who is patient and loving. If you 
had children who were disobeying you, not, not doing what you commanded them to do, would you have said, you know what, I'm going to go down and I'm going to confuse your languages? God is creative. God is patient. God is loving and kind. Which I am sure that you would join with me when I praise Him for that. I praise Him for His creativeness. I praise Him for His patience and loving kindness. But we also see a God who is majestic and sovereign. How often we thumb our noses at God and say, we must be God. And God says, no, 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 no. You want to see how much you can't even come close? You all have different languages. Now you don't have the same words. Even English-speaking people can say the same thing and hear two different things. He confused their words, and it confused their languages. An obstacle which man cannot overcome, even though we've been trying for the last 4,000 years. We see a God who is majestic and sovereign, allowing men to see the light because we live in darkness caused by our own sin. You see, it would be just, it would be righteous for God to say, you know what, you want to live in sin? You live in sin. You live in that darkness. I'm going to take my light and I'm going to go someplace else. And you'll never see the light. But God says, no, you live in sin and you live in darkness. Now I'm going to show you the light. Because now you can understand and comprehend that I am not what you are. And you need me. The reality of this world should serve as a reminder of something much, much better. Jesus told his disciples to take the gospel and to make disciples starting where they were, and to branch out to the remotest parts of the earth. Only he knew what they and what we would encounter in that process. He is the inventor of languages. You and I, in radical faith, rest confident knowing that he understands the task that is yet to be completed. But part of that task has already been completed for you because somebody translated this for you. Spend time with the Word of God. This past week, we had a situation happen with one of our VBS families. And uh, a Bible was given out this past week. And the, the mother said, well, we're Catholic. We leave it to be explained to us. And I thought, boy, that's exactly what they were doing in Babel. And now it is our opportunity to praise the Lord, to give Him glory to continue to make disciples and to teach them all that God has commanded us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the opportunity that we have to see the Tower of Babel, to understand that these people didn't make a name for themselves. Their name is confused. Lord, I pray now that as we focus on your word, as we seek to make disciples, that you would drive us to them. Drive us to the ones who are ready, that we would be able to harvest and see the bounty of the harvest come in. Lord, I pray also that you would cause us to step out in radical faith, that we would not be like those at the Tower of Babel, that we would be willing to step out to do what you have commanded us to do rather than consider self-preservation. Because we recognize that Jesus said to his disciples, if you love your life, you will lose it. And if you lose it, you will gain it. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to lose our life for you. 
We give you the glory and the honor for it. In your son's name I pray. Amen.